Well, good evening and welcome to uh, Temple Bat Yam. You hardy souls who have braved this inclement weather to be with us uh, this evening for this presentation on the subject of peace. I was just talking to Dr. Isaacs uh, for a few moments. Uh, we seem to be uh, on different sides of the spectrum, but we'll see uh, after your talk. So this should be a fascinating uh, evening for me as well, because we Jews are infatuated with peace. And there's no religious literature that so eloquently champions the cause of peace as the Torah and rabbinic literature. As a matter of fact, the United, the United Nations could not think of a greater testament than the vision of the prophet Isaiah about beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks on the so-called Isaiah wall. Shlemut, which is the essence of peace, holiness, is among the foremost ideals of our tradition and the subject of today's greatest controversies. There are those who urge the Jewish people to go to great lengths to achieve peace, while others say the prospect of peace is an illusion, born of delusion. There are those who say that concessions will pave the road to peace, while others denounce such strategies as appeasement. There are those who espouse the formula of giving up land for peace, while others speak of that as giving up land for the destruction of Israel. There are those who speak of momentum for peace, while others see it as a euphemism for unilateral concessions by Israel. There are those who believe that peace with the Palestinians is possible, while others listen to the Hezbollah leader who said, we are not fighting so that you will offer us something. We are fighting to eliminate you. There are those who uphold the power of ethics in the Jewish tradition and those who uphold the ethic of power. And finally, there are those who speak of sitting under vines and fig trees in peace, while others speak of manning the barricades in preemptive war. So tonight we enjoy the schut, the privilege of welcoming Dr. Alec Isaacs, a renowned scholar at the Sholem Hartman Institute for Advanced Jewish Studies, an expert on the subject of peace, a beneficiary of a yeshiva education, a prolific author. As you can imagine, he's the recipient of numerous awards and honors. He lives in the holy city with his wife and five children a gifted teacher. Dr. Isaacs will treat us to an exposition of peace in Jewish thought. We're honored by his presence and anticipate a stimulating evening. Doctor. Good evening. I don't know where you got that biography of me from. It's <laughs> far too flattering. I'm sure you'll take it back. Um, 
Before I get started on peace, I've um, been thinking all afternoon about a childhood song that, that we used to sing when we were kids in Scotland. I won't, I won't sing it for you, but the words were, a little drop of rain, can he do you any harm? And apparently the words never made their way over the, over, over the pond, all the way to California, where, where a little drop of rain seems to scare the living daylights out of you. So it's amazing. So I'd first of all like to thank you all for coming. I, uh, I know that the, that the journey has, has, has been a challenge and there's trepidation on the way. And, uh, and I really appreciate it that you're here and I'm looking forward very much to, to talking with you and also to discussing with you and hearing your responses um, to, uh, to my presentation. There's a handout sheet which I, which I hope everyone has. Um, I'm, this evening, as opposed to yesterday's um, lecture, I know that some of you were, were there. This evening I'd like, to, I'd like to teach some texts and I'd like, to, I'd like to dedicate the majority of what I want to say to studying, to studying some, classical, some classical Jewish texts. Particularly this evening we're going to be looking at biblical texts. The subject is peace um, within the context of the um, biblical tradition. But before I get started on that, I'd like, to frame, I'd like to frame the discussion of peace in our times. First of all, within the context of my own personal story, which is always with me. Those of you who were there last night will have heard some. Um, and, within, and also within the context of the wider experience in which my personal story has meaning. My, my interest in peace actually started many, many years ago. But my... my Dedication to it as a subject of research was predominantly the product of participating in a war. There's nothing like the experience of going to war for getting you thinking about peace. One of the striking, one of the striking things that hit me personally while I was fighting the Second Lebanese War in the summer of 2006 was the chain of events in my own life that brought me into the situation of being at war. And when I, when I cast my mind back, it was clear to me that the reason I was fighting a war was because I was Jewish. I'd made a decision as a young, as a young lad that I wanted to be an active member of the Jewish community, that I wanted to be a member of a Jewish youth movement that I wanted to have a Jewish education, that I wanted to live in a Jewish state. And it struck me very powerfully at war, that I was at war because I'd made decisions about living a rich, informed, engaged, and committed Jewish life. Now, that little thought is quite a remarkable thought in the history of the Jewish people. Because for thousands of years, the idea that a soldier will find himself in a battlefield because of his Jewish commitment has never been on, it's never been on the charts. It's a new experience. It's part of the experience of engaging with Jewish sovereignty. The realities of Jewish sovereignty have forced us to live out our public lives as Jews in ways that no generation before ours has ever had to. And that's an experience that I spoke about a little bit more at length last night. 
and that will really be framing many, many of the issues um, that I'm going to be talking about while I'm here in California during the course of this very rainy winter. So how come? How come Jews end up fighting wars? What does that mean? How does that affect our tradition? And more specifically, how does it affect the way in which we interpret our tradition? When we look at Jewish texts and we try to understand them, and we try to make sense of them. For me, the burning concern coming back from war was to go back to Jewish texts and to ask them, how do you understand peace? What does peace mean in the Jewish tradition? And can the ways in which the Jewish tradition understands peace inform our attempts to make peace in the Middle East today? Now, that doesn't mean that I'm an optimist. And it also doesn't mean that I'm a politician. I'm neither. I don't, want to say anything, I don't want to say anything that is directly political. What I do want to say, I think, is that the Jewish tradition has understandings of peace that strike me as significantly different from the way in which peace is understood in Western liberal politics. The discourse of peace that dominates international politics today talks about peace in a different language. Maybe a musical metaphor would be better. It talks about peace in a different key. And understanding that distinction might open the door towards a significant reevaluation of policy in the Middle East. I'm not going to go into that policy. I'm not going to talk about it very much. I'm going to say a few things about it at the end. And if you like, you can ask questions about it. And I'll do my very best to avoid giving you clear answers. But I'd like to start off going into the tradition and talking about peace itself, okay? Now, there are many, many examples and many, many places in which the Jewish tradition talks about peace. Rabbi Miller gave us a description of some of the, some of the prophetic visions of Isaiah and the way in which these visions have inspired, have inspired all sorts of platitudes in favor of peace that have been taken up all over the world. But what I would like to talk about is not so much the the abstract concept of peace where there's no conflict. I'd like to look at the place in which peace surfaces as a practical notion of a conflict's resolution. What kind of a conflict can be resolved in peace? Now, the case that I have chosen is not a case in which the Jewish people is at war with another with another nation. The case that I've chosen is a very symbolic conflict that takes place internally within the Jewish people. So let's, let's focus a little bit on that. And this conflict has a long, long, long history. It's not a short story at all. In fact, in many ways, we're still in the middle of it. An internal Jewish conflict that is yet to be resolved. But the source of that conflict is in the story of the brothers of Joseph, the story of the children of Jacob, B'nai Israel, the children of Israel. And as I'm sure you all know, the brothers of Joseph had a problem with their younger kid brother. The 10 sons of Jacob were very unhappy with Joseph the great dreamer. As a young child, Joseph saw visions and in his visions, he saw his brothers before him, down at his feet. And they didn't like that very much. 
So Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit. Joseph's brothers actually planned to kill him. But in the end, they ended up throwing him into a pit. I'm sure you're familiar with the story in Genesis. And they sold him off to a band of Ishmaelites and lost track of him. They came home to their father. They said to their father that, their son, that the younger son, Joseph, had been consumed by a wild animal. They held his clothing in front of him that had been steeped in the blood of an animal. And they said, look, to'af, to'af, Yosef. Joseph has, been, Joseph has been attacked by an animal. Years later, as I'm sure you all know, the brothers find themselves in Egypt, standing in front of Joseph and begging Joseph to forgive them, not for the offense that they performed on, that they perpetrated against him when, when they were children or when they were younger, but for a slightly different problem. Joseph stands in the guise of an Egyptian gentleman by the name of Tsofnat Pa'aneach. He stands in front of his brothers and sees his dream coming true as they grovel on the ground in front of him, begging him to release the younger brother, Benjamin, who he is holding captive. And at that very moment, the Torah gives us a break in the story. We are looking, we're looking, it's one of the most dramatic moments in the Torah reading in, in, the, in the yearly cycle. We're looking at this moment where Joseph takes Benjamin captive and the story cuts short. It's like a soap opera. The story cuts short and we have a break in the weekly cycle of the readings. We need to wait a week until we see Judah approaching Joseph and begging him to release Benjamin. And we have this phrase, which I, I have to share with you, because it, goes, it, goes, it rings around in my head. The phrase is, Vaigash elav Yehuda. And Judah approached him. Now, you might think I'm a little bit mad here, but I hear that, that word year in, year out, year in, year out. And there's something about the word Vaigash. He approached him that gives me the sense that as Judah is approaching and getting closer and closer to Joseph, he's never able to bridge the gap. The word comes around again and again and again. When you read these texts in a liturgical cycle, and they re they're read year after year after year, this vaigash reverberates across time. Judah approaches Joseph. He approaches and he gets closer and he gets closer and he gets closer but never manages to bridge the gap. There's this case in physics which I'm sure you're all familiar with that if two points you break the distance every time 50%, 50%, it keeps on going. What's that called? I've forgotten what it's called. I'm sure you all know. But it gets you get closer and closer but you never manage to bridge the gap. You can keep cutting it by half every time but they'll never meet. That's my image here. Vaigash elav Yehuda, Yehuda never manages to reach Joseph. Let's have a look at the text and see why. Then Judah came near unto him, Vaigash elav Yehuda, Vayomer, and said, O my Lord, be Adoni, let thy servant, I pray, I pray thee, speak in my Lord's eyes. And let not thine anger burn against thy servant. 
for thou art even as Pharaoh. Let's just think for a minute about this situation. I find it very striking. Judah, as far as he is concerned, is speaking to an Egyptian. He has no idea that the person standing in front of him is his brother. So the potential for misunderstanding between them is very, very sharp, very, very powerful. Judah is appeasing somebody, and he doesn't know who he's talking to. The first rule of appeasing somebody is that you Google them first. You find out who you're talking to. You need to know their sensitivities. You need to know their buzzwords. You've got to press all the right buttons so as they'll respond, so as you can reach them and speak to their pre-existing concerns. Judah didn't, pre, pre, he didn't Google Joseph. He didn't know who he was talking to. He didn't understand who he was talking to. And not only that, he thought he was speaking to Joseph through an interpreter. They're speaking different languages to each other. Even though Joseph understands Judah's Hebrew, the text goes on to tell us that he is not coming clean. Joseph is not letting on that he understands the words that are coming out of Judah's mouth. So we have a tremendously loaded and ironic situation in which this, this brother is trying to appease Joseph. Let's go on. I don't want to go on. There's a passage that I want to read out. Excuse me. Before we, before we go to the next text that you have, the Bible itself carries on. For some reason here, it's more abridged than I'd intended. The Bible itself carries on. And we're told that as Judah tries to appease Joseph, he tells him the story of what had happened. Let me read from the biblical text. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, let your servant, I beg you, speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are as Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one. And his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother. And his father loves him. And you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes upon him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, except your youngest brother come down with you, you shall not see my face no more. And it came to pass when we came up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, and our father said, go again and buy us a little food. And we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother be with us. Then will we go down, for we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother be with us. And your, father, and your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn in pieces. And I saw him not since. And if you take this also from me and harm befall him, you shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, to hell. 
Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life. Judah is standing in front of Joseph and he's saying to Joseph, you can't do this to my father. You can't do this to us. My father will be so distraught, so destroyed if we don't bring back the younger brother. But when Judah tries to convince Joseph, Judah lies. Listen to the line. And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one, and his brother is dead. Think of the drama. Judah is trying to convince Joseph to appease, to, to make peace with him. But Judah's strategy for convincing Joseph involves telling Joseph a lie that only Joseph can know. That's really bad luck. That's really bad luck. The only person in the world who could have seen through Judah's strategy for convincing this Egyptian, this Egyptian prince to forgive him and to give him a break the only person in the world who knew that Judah was lying was standing right in front of him at that moment. The situation that Judah was trying to reconcile became irreconcilable because Joseph stands there looking at him and he says, really? Your brother's dead. That's interesting. Go back to your page. And Joseph could no longer restrain himself before all them that stood before him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. Or as they say in American movies, give me the room. And there stood no man with them while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud. And his brethren could not answer him, for they were affrighted by his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. Again, vaigash. They came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold unto Egypt. When Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph, your brother, who you sold unto Egypt, he's saying, I am Joseph, your brother, who you sold unto Egypt, not who is dead. Remember, you just lied? You just said you had a dead brother. He didn't say, I survived. I'm Joseph, your brother. You thought I was dead, but actually you didn't know. But you know what happened? I survived. He didn't say that. He said, I am Joseph, your brother, who you sold unto Egypt. The irony in Joseph's words is really lost time and time again as this story is told. I don't know if you grew up with the same, with the same images of this story that I did, but I grew up with this story as a wonderful, a wonderful tale of reconciliation. 
My experiences of this story were significantly enhanced by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, who gave me the Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat version of the story, where you have Jacob came to Egypt, right? No longer feeling old, and they all live together, and everything is wonderful. And Joseph says to, Joseph says to Judah, can't you recognize my face? Is it hard to see? Joseph, who you thought was dead, your brother is me. And they cuddle each other, and they kiss, and they make up, and everything is wonderful, and they live in peace. But unfortunately, that ain't the way the Bible tells the story. The Bible gives us a very, very different reality. The Bible gives us Judah trying to convince this Egyptian to release his brother ben Benjamin and saying all the wrong things. And then it gives us Joseph coming clean in front of Judah Speaking to him now in Hebrew, of course, because everyone has left the room, which means that all of a sudden they hear the vernacular, they hear their own language, this familiarity, this all of a sudden these boundaries are broken between them and this Egyptian. The formalities go away. They start speaking to each other in Hebrew, in Mamaloshan. They start communicating with each other. And Joseph says to them, plain and simple, I'm your brother Joseph. Now let's get history straight. I'm the brother Joseph who you sold to Egypt. Remember? Here I am. I didn't die. You fabricated my death. And then you started believing your own lies. Now what can we say? What can we say for Judah? And what can we say for Joseph? And is there any hope of their ever being able to reconcile this difference? The story, the story of Judah and Joseph, unfortunately is never really ever resolved. And we have a theme of these two tribes, the tribe of Judah on the one hand, and the tribes of Joseph. Of course, Joseph's tribe breaks up into Ephraim and Menashe. And both Ephraim and Menashe, the tribes who are named after Joseph's two sons, and the tribe of Judah remain in conflict all the way through, all the way through the Bible. If you follow the story, particularly of the book of Kings, you'll discover that in the book of Kings, the kingdom of Israel splits into two. We have a kingdom which is ruled in Jerusalem by, by the line of Judah, represented by the family of King David, which runs from David and Solomon and onwards. And we have a kingdom, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, who are ruled by Joseph. And respectively, both of the tribes of Ephraim and Menashe, the two tribes that are descended from Joseph directly, remain in perpetual conflict with the kingdom of Judah and the rule of the, of the line of King David. This runs all the way through the Bible. We have a very, very powerful split inside the kingdom of Israel that is never really resolved. Now, a testimony to that, to, that, to that absence of resolution is there in the prophecies of Ezekiel, Yechezkel. I'd like you to look with me at the next text. The prophecy appears in Yechezkel Lamed Zayn, Yechezkel 37. 
which is, the, which is the passage from the Bible that we read as the Haftarah on the Shabbat when we read the story of Joseph and Judah in Vaigash. And by the time we've reached the time of Yechezkel, by the time we've reached the time of the latter prophets, it's clear that the prophecy is describing an ongoing situation in which the conflict between Joseph and Judah has not yet been resolved. So, however you analyze the story in Breshit, and if you would like to suggest, a suggestion that I don't think holds water, that after Jacob dies, the tribes resolve their differences and get it together. And it does look as if there's some kind of a resolution there. And biblical scholars argue about the extent to which Joseph and Judah actually make up. And Joseph says to his brothers, don't worry, guys. You weren't really important. You were just part of my story. The fact that you told that I was, that I was, that I was sent into slavery, that I was killed, sorry, when you sold me off into slavery, I don't really care. I forgive you. You know why I forgive you? Because my destiny was, was a divine destiny. You were just pawns playing out God's plan. So let's put our, let's, let's let bygones be bygones. We can, we can resolve our differences because you don't really matter all that much. That's a great way of making peace, isn't it, right? So you can imagine the brothers felt really pacified by that and they said, oh, okay, Joseph, we'll accept that. It really depends on how you read that story. But my assumption is that the correct way to read the narrative in Genesis is that that, that line, Joseph's line, don't worry, I forgive you, all you were doing was carrying out God's plan, didn't really placate the brothers and didn't really resolve the contradiction between them. But however you read it, however you read it, what is clear is that A, the conflict between these two lines, the line of Judah and the line of Joseph continues, and that by the time we reach the prophecies of Ezekiel, of Yechezkel, these differences have yet to be resolved. Now let's have a look and see what Yechezkel has to say about it. Thus the word of the Lord came to me. Now, son of man, take a single stick and write on it Judah and those Israelites who are associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the houses of Israel associated with him. Then join the two sticks together so that they form one stick in your hand. When your countrymen ask you, will you not tell us what you mean by all this? Answer them, thus says the Lord God, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it to the stick of Judah, making them a single stick. They shall be one in my hands. The sticks on which you write, you should hold up before them to see. Tell them they have come and gather them from all sides to bring them back to their land. I will make them one nation upon the land in the mountains of Israel and there shall be one prince for them all. 
Never again shall they be two nations, and never again shall they be divided into two kingdoms. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? That these two nations will be held together and they will become one. There's only one little problem. You've got to take a stick with Joseph written on it. You've got to take a stick with Judah written on it. You've got to hold them together and they have to become one. Does anybody here know how to do that? What we have here is the description of a resolution of conflict that defines the resolution of conflict. It defines peace itself as an impossibility. Now, that's an idea that I'd like to take just a few minutes to talk about because I think it's central to the way in which the Bible talks about peace. One of the central themes in the Bible is the idea that the resolution of conflict, peace, is an impossibility. If you notice the title of this evening's lecture, it's taken from the book of Isaiah, and it's called, And the Wolf Shall Lie with the Lamb. Now, wolves lying with lambs might strike you as a little bit unlikely, because wolves tend to eat lambs. Actually, the passage there from Isaiah describes more than just wolves lying with lambs. It gives us a whole portrayal of carnivores and their food living together and lying next to each other, whether it's lions and tigers next to sheep and donkeys. It doesn't matter. These animals do not lie next to each other. Now, for a long time, I pondered this passage, and I used to assume that lions will lie with lambs and wolves and sheep, and they'll all live together when somehow the whole of nature completely changes. But then, let me just explain that a second more. When the whole of nature changes, in other words, we're talking about a messianic era in which the entirety of nature will lose its teeth and we'll, we'll move into this vegetarian world where people, where animals stop preying on each other. But then I saw a National Geographic movie. I saw this incredible National Geographic movie. You can still get it on the internet. But somebody in Africa managed to capture the most incredible story. I don't know if any of you caught this, but it's really the most incredible, incredible story. And it's the story of a lioness who, on the hunt for an ibex, did you see this? You're nodding. On the hunt for an ibex, there's no real explanation of what happened, but for some reason, the hormone that kicks in when the animal goes on the chase, this lioness, she lost her cheshik. And instead of killing this ibex and eating it up, she actually decided to st start taking care of it. And the hunt stops. This is all on film. It's the most incredible scene. The hunt stops, and the lioness starts licking the ibex. And the ibex settles down and lies on the ground, and the lioness lies down next to it, and they stay together. I looked at this, and I said, wow. This is, this is, this is the prophecy coming true. It can happen. But then I carried on watching the movie. Why didn't it finish? Why no happy ending? 
because the lioness and the ibex became attached to each other and they became dependent on each other. And gradually, as they are lying together, a pride of lions starts gathering around. And you see this lioness protecting the ibex, and she's roaring like mad, keeping these other lions at bay and keeping them away. And she roars and she roars and she roars. But she starts to get weak. She can't leave the ibex, but she needs to hunt. She needs to eat. If she were to leave the ibex, the other lions would come and eat it. And she doesn't want that to happen. She's protecting it. The ibex needs to eat too. But he can't go away from his protectorate lioness because if he leaves her, the other lions will get him. So we have this lion lying next to a lamb, but they are locked in a tragic partnership that's going to destroy them both. Ultimately, what happens is that they stay there for days and days and days. The lioness, if you saw the end of the movie, gets so weak that she dies. The ibex survives. And the moment the lioness dies, the pride of lions descend on this ibex and tear it to pieces. It's the most incredible scene. I cried my eyes out. Because not only is this a testimony to how unlikely it is for the wolf to lie with the lamb, it suggested to me very powerfully that this is not something that will one day be possible, but that it is in itself a unity forged in the fires of impossibility. Believe it or not, the Jewish conception of peace seems to be fundamentally connected to the notion of an impossibility. Well, that's an idea that is not very comforting when we first think about it. But I want to take it a little bit further. Before I do, let's Let's go back to Ezekiel. I will deliver them. No, one more line, one line back. No longer shall they defile themselves with their idols, their abominations, and all their transgressions. I will deliver them from all their sins of apostasy and cleanse them so that they may be my people and I may be their God. My servant David shall be prince over them, and there shall be one shepherd for them all. They shall live by my statutes and carefully observe my decrees. They shall live on the land which I give to my servant Jacob, the land where their fathers lived. They shall live on it forever, they and their children and their children's children, with my servant David, their prince, forever. I will make with them a covenant of peace. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will multiply them and put my sanctuary among them forever. Vekarati lahem brit shalom, brit olam ye otam. I will make for them a covenant of peace. It's such a beautiful beautiful image. 
It's so beautiful that when my wife and I got married, we put it on our wedding invitation. I think if I'd understood it back then, I probably wouldn't have put it onto the, inv onto the invitation. But what God is describing is a notion of peace in which impossibilities are reconciled. Somehow, Joseph and Judah resolve their differences. But not only do Joseph and Judah resolve their differences, but God and the Jewish people resolve their differences. And not only do God and the Jewish people resolve their differences, but those who lead and those who are led resolve their differences as well. We have a kingdom that works, a political system that works, a theology that works, and a people that stands united. Sounds too good to be true? I think it is. I think it is fundamentally too good to be true. And this is the heart and the essence of the notion of peace as it plays out in the Jewish tradition. Peace seems to imply a unification of opposite forces that under normal circumstances will cancel each other out. Peace, shalom, seems to imply a kind of completion, a kind of culmination, a kind of coming together that in and of itself cannot be accomplished. The Talmud talks about peace as the unification of fire and water. Rav Kook, the founding figure of religious Zionism, talks about peace as the unification of all opposites. Rabbi Nachman of Braslav, who maybe some of you have heard of, you familiar with Rabbi Nachman of Braslav? He talks about peace as the unification of compassion and hardline justice. Din v'rachamim. These two conflicting forces in legal thinking that run all the way through the Jewish tradition, that run all the way through Jewish theology, is God, God a, just, a God of justice or is he a God of mercy? Somehow these things come together in Rabbi Nachman's thinking, and when these opposites come together, that is where we find peace. This is a theme that recurs so many times in the Jewish tradition. Peace is the unification of opposite forces that cancel each other out and that can only truly be united under impossible circumstances in impossible situations. Now I look at this and I wonder, what, what is the religious message of this? What could this possibly mean? What is the Jewish tradition trying to teach us when it presents us with a notion of peace that is so far away from our reach. I'd like to suggest, before I, I give you a full answer to this question, I'd like to suggest that there is a fundamental connection in the Jewish tradition between the notion of peace, shalom, and the notion of God. God, like peace, involves a unification of opposite forces, 
and also a sense of the impossible. If there's one thing that characterizes anything that could ever be said about God, it's that we don't know anything. The truth about God is that none of us know. I would like to share with you what I think is the clearest biblical articulation of that idea, that God is a mystery and an impossibility. Have a look at the next text. It's taken from the book of Kings, and it's a very famous, it's a very famous text. And it describes Elijah the prophet's encounter with what I would say is the highest moment of revelation that Eliyahu Hanavi ever has. Let's read. And as he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again in the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Chorev, the mount of God. Elijah goes like Moses to Mount Chorev after not eating for forty days and forty nights. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What dost thou hear, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life. The Midrash says here, by the way, that for saying to God that Elijah is on his own and the only one who keeps the covenant with God, the Midrash says that God punished Elijah. And he said to him, you think you're the only one, this is the Midrash, it's not in the biblical text. You think you're the only one who keeps the covenant? You know what? I'm not going to let you die. And for the rest of history, you're going to visit every child who has a brit milah, and you will see that the people of Israel keep the covenant. And for generation after generation, you're going to watch it happen time and time again as punishment for saying this. That's the origin of the custom of bringing Elijah to the Brit Milah ceremony. But anyway, that was just an aside. So only I am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. I'd like to correct the translation of that phrase. A still, small voice, I think, should be translated a little differently. The Hebrew phrase is kol dmama daka. Dmama in Hebrew means silence. So a still, small voice should really be a silent 
thin voice, silent voice. Again, we have an oxymoron there, right? In other words, Elijah looks around and he hears an earthquake and he sees the rain and he sees fire and he sees forces and none of these great forces are God. The force of God, in the words of Simon and Garfunkel, is the sound of silence. Elijah discovers that knowledge of God, that pure knowledge of God, at the moment when he says, I'm the one who's defending your tradition. I'm the one who's fighting for you. I'm the one who they are persecuting because I'm the one who knows your truth. God says to him, what are you talking about? You want to really know what I'm all about? Listen carefully. Don't be fooled when you see force. Don't be fooled when you see fire. Don't be fooled when the water comes gushing down that that's me. That's nothing to do with me. You want to know the pure essence of me? Silence. There's nothing there that you can understand. There's nothing there that you can fight for. There's nothing there that you can defend. There's nothing there that allows you to be zealous in my name because you don't know. There's silence. There's a sweet, soft, gentle silence that will defy any of the fighting that you do in my name. The impossibility of the idea of peace is fundamentally connected to the impossibility of the idea of God. People who claim to have a monopoly over God, I think this is the message that God is teaching Elijah. People who claim to have a monopoly over God, to know God's word, to speak in his name, to defend his name, are generally, likely at least, to be guilty of defending themselves, of speaking up for themselves, of caring first and foremost about themselves. The impossibility of capturing the idea of God means that the idea of God cannot be dragged onto the battlefield. There is no concept more foreign to Jewish theology than holy war. Deus volt. God wished it, so we will go to battle. We don't know. The idea of peace fundamentally, I would argue, has been responsible for more wars in history than any single value. People go to war for peace all the time. What are you fighting for? We want to make peace. What does that mean? It means we need to destroy them in order to make peace. That's what Joseph thinks. We need to make them accept us. We need to beat them. And when we accomplish our victory, then there'll be peace. Until they get powerful enough to make peace back. And we have war after war after war over peace. I think that the striking message that appears in the prophecies of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, of Jeremiah, of Micah, it actually appears all over the prophetic literature, is that the idea of peace itself is a kol dmama daka. It's an oxymoron. 
It's so gentle. It defies our comprehension. It's such a delicate term. It's such a delicate concept that you cannot make peace. And if you cannot make peace, you cannot make war in the name of peace. You cannot build monuments that stand as a living testimony to the force that you use in the name of making peace. So much force is applied. You made a, you made a little quip about the United, what was it you said, the United Nothings? It's a Freudian slip. But the irony of it is the attempt to use force to create a consensus of agreement which is the same as the capitulation of the other. When this is your understanding of peace, peace is, in, is deconstructed, exposed by the Bible and by prophetic literature as the idea that no one can ever monopolize. Now, this is, I think, a striking, striking notion. It leads us to the conclusion that in order for peace to take place, in order for there to be peace in the world, we need to have a unification of the impossible, a coming together of the impossible. Opposite forces need to come together. And for opposite forces to come together, they need both to exist. As Rabbi Cook puts it, we need a proliferation, a prolifer say that again, a proliferation of voices, a proliferation of voices and of varieties and of sounds and of opinions that defy any of our own synthesis. We need more and more variety in the world in order for that tremendous sound to come together and culminate in a kol d'mama daka. That silence that comes when every voice is heard. It's beyond the power of men. It's beyond the power of men and women together. It's beyond the power of Judah and it's beyond the power of Joseph. It lies at the end of days, a messianic vision that tells us that peace will be accomplished only when God makes it happen. And until he does, let us be warned that it is not for us to use force to bring peace into the world. So we have a two-tiered notion of peace here. This is what I'm presenting. Notion number one is a messianic peace. It's that peace that deconstructs and delegitimizes all of our attempts to bring peace by force. But in the knowledge that peace is reserved for the end of days, we live in the world today humiliated, humble, wary, and careful about the use of force to make peace, which ultimately enforces upon us a second tier, a second level of pacifism. It's a very, very interesting concept. 
Now the question is, how does it play out? How does it play out in politics? If there's one thing that's striking about the biblical notions of peace, it's that they are apolitical. The idea of peace, when it's described in Isaiah, if you look at our final passage, for a child is born unto us, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name is called Peleo Etzel Gibor Avi Adsar Shalom. Wonderful in counsel is God, the mighty, the everlasting Father, the ruler of peace. That's a translation. That the government may be increased, and of peace there be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it through justice and through righteousness, for henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts doth perform this. Now, there are three themes in this passage. Number one, peace, that there will be a peace. But the two other themes are the ones that are pretty important here. The second one, the latter one, is that God is the one who brings about peace. The former one is that government in the time of peace is ruled by children. This is not the only time that this theme comes up in Isaiah. It actually recurs on a number of different occasions. That in the time of peace, government will be handed over to children. That society will be turned upside down. The political hierarchy is inversed when children lead. It actually says when children and women lead. Right? You can read that with a feminist tone if you like. Probably wise to do so. But I think if you understand it within the biblical context, the idea is that society gets turned upside down. In other words, if we fall in love with our own political power, if we fall in love with our own governments, if we fall in love with our own capacity to bring order to the world and to organize society, the last thing we are likely to achieve is peace. It's skepticism about politics. It's skepticism about society. It's skepticism about our own power and belief in God, which ultimately symbolizes here the deferral of power to God that will bring about a possibility of creating peace. In other words, this is an anti-political philosophy of peace. Judah represents politics. That's one party. Joseph represents politics. That's the other party. Peace comes when both sides lose their egos completely and become one in the hands of a prophet. Impossible. But if we believe in that impossibility enough to relinquish our own power, enough to want to live in the awareness of God rather in the awareness of our own strength, under those circumstances, the Bible suggests what will be left when we leave go of our own power, when we leave go of our own ego, what will be left is almost an impossibility, but it's, an, it's a vision of peace. Now, I'd like to argue just to complete that this is a central thrust in the, Jew, central thrust in the Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition is all about making power, making power structures weaker. Jewish law 
is all about making power structures weaker. When I legislate, I'll tell you the law. But the book that tells you the law will give you 15 other opinions on the same issue at the same time. The power structure of Jewish legislation is very, very weak. It's constantly undermining itself. It's constantly thinking of itself in weak terms. If we could imagine a kind of statehood and a kind of politics that embraces the kind of humility about human power that these biblical visions invite upon us, I think we might be able to talk more effectively about a politics of peace. But this is biblical narrative. How this translates, how this affects what we do in Israel today, I told you I'm not gonna get too political. The question is there, I'm leaving it open. But I think that there is a fundamental understanding of peace here, which is completely different from the one that we use when we talk in contemporary politics. And the striking thing that I'll just say, just to complete, the striking thing is that the ideas that I've just described to you are very, very well understood inside Israeli society. When you talk to people in Israel about what they mean by peace, the idea that resonates is much more about this kind of proliferation of opposites into an impossible unity. That makes much more sense in Israel than either the language of compromise or the language of human rights. It's striking how many people in Israel you can talk to about peace on these terms who wouldn't give you the time of day to talk about peace in the language of compromise and human rights. So maybe there is the foundation in the Bible for the kind of conversation and for the kind of discussion that might bring us forward as we try to think about peace in the Middle East. Bakesh shalom verodfehu. Peace is something that you chase after. Just like vayigash elav Yehuda. You keep on heading for it. You never quite get there. It's elusive. But as long as you know it, be warned. If you know you're never going to get there, then be warned that you must proceed gently. Thank you. Questions? Please feel free to ask questions. Yes. Sorry? That we, we cannot know God. Yes. Yes. God's way is fundamentally connected to not knowing God. The idea that we have a monopoly over God's will, right? That God said, I know. I think is entirely foreign to the Jewish tradition. Which is why the Jewish tradition is multivocal about everything. It's multivocal about every single narrative. It's multivocal about every single law. That doesn't mean that it isn't normative. There are features of the Jewish tradition that are normative. But those things that are normative are like lines drawn in, lines drawn in the sand, right? We're multivocal about everything. The Jewish tradition is constantly in flux. And as we engage inside that flux, right, we don't dare speak in God's name. Right? We don't dare claim that we know God's will. 
It's one of the striking paradoxes of the Jewish tradition. We engage in God without ever reaching him. If we could understand God and master God, he wouldn't be God anymore. The same thing applies for peace. The kind of dignity and the kind of respect that you accord to a God that you cannot understand, you also accord to a notion of peace that you cannot completely bring about. I think every parent knows this, by the way. It's not something that's foreign. I think every parent knows it. That the only way, the only way you can resolve a conflict between your children is by force. And when you force your children to resolve the conflict, the conflict has not been resolved. It's been perpetuated. And I think every parent experiences this. It's not foreign to, it's not foreign to human experience at all. So, do you understand? Am I, am I addressing your question? So I would suggest, I would suggest that this kind, of, this kind of softer notion of who God is and what God's will is, is a theological concept that can be translated into a very different kind of politics from the sort of politics that we've experienced for the last couple of hundred years. So that's the suggestion. And feminine theology, don't forget. Absolutely. If we really had a good... We wouldn't have to struggle. We wouldn't have to do anything. Yes, go ahead. Well, the kol and the dmama. That's what. That's the paradox. Ibex. That's right. The only really course you have is to die. Do you have an alternative to that? <laughs> I, 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 think, um, I think mortality is, on the, is, is, is a given here. Um, yes, the only real alternative you ever have is to die. Let, let, let me give you, let me take your question and, and move it over to a slightly different realm and I think the point will become clear. I think that deep down, the question is, the question is, uh, ultimately, what, what, what's your name? The, ultimately, the question is, what's the point of pursuing peace if it's impossible? Basically, that's what you're saying. The end of the story will always be perpetuated conflict, so what's the point? Well, I think the same thing is true for good and evil. 
The same thing is true for, for, for sinning and for transgression. One of the striking experiences that I think you have as you grow up, right? Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur, right? Is that you're saying, I was sorry for that one last year. And then you do it again. You say, oh, I was sorry for that one two years ago and last year. And then the following year, oh, my God, I was sorry for that one three years ago, two years ago, and last year. I'm wasting my time. The whole point, I think, of religious experience is that we are engaged profoundly in the pursuit of the impossible. If God was possible, if God was attainable, I don't think it would be interesting. I don't think it would last. I think it's not that we're struggling with ourselves. It's not that we are, it's not, and it's also not that we're making progress. But it's that our ultimate ideals remain compelling, not because we think we can reach them, but precisely because we know we can't. The most powerful ideas in the world are ideologies. Because ideolo not because ideologies convince us that we have created ideal societies, but because ideologies constantly remind us that our societies are not ideal. There's no one who frightens me more than someone who says, my life is perfect, I don't have any problems. That scares the hell out of me. People who say, my society is perfect, we've got it figured out. They scare the hell out of me. They're victims of, of a terrible violence because that's not human nature, that's not society, that's not humanity, precisely for the reason that you mentioned, because there's only one thing we know for sure, and that's that we're all going to die. The fundamental experience of our mortality is that we cannot allow ourselves to idealize the conditions of our own existence, and therefore we strive to improve them. And I think peace has the same impact. We cannot live in peace. And because we cannot live in peace, we strive for peace. It's the fundamental motivating factor is rooted in that paradox. If the lions didn't come and get the ibex at the end, the story would have been pointless. You would then have been able to censure nature. You can do it better because there's an ideal out there that you should, have, that you should be able to live up to. It's the impossible expectation that motivates and that I think is very powerful. Yes, there's a gentleman in the blue jacket. No? I thought, that was a, I thought that was a raised hand. Sorry. Oh, God forbid. <laughs> okay. What you're asking is about politics. And the notion of peace that I'm presenting is fundamentally rooted in a philosophy of anti-politics, which is what I think prophets do for a living. Right? Prophets, prophets critique critique the political structures, right? I, I wasn't giving you now a recipe for what Middle East peace should look like. I was, trying to, I was trying to do something else. But you're asking why is it relevant. I'd like to suggest why it's relevant. In the equation that we all live in, in the world that we all live in, religion is perceived fundamentally as the striking obstacle to peace in the world. 
Whether that religion is fundamentalist Christianity, fundamentalist Islam, or fundamentalist Judaism. We tend to think of religion and of religious thinking as the primary obstacle to peace in Western politics. Okay? That's actually an argument that was set into place by a rather intelligent and interesting German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant. And he, he, was, the one, he was the one who articulated in, a, in an essay that he published in 1782 called Perpetual Peace, the fundamental notion that religious convictions were responsible for war. And that's a notion that's rooted predominantly in the Christian experience of the Crusades. When I go to the Jewish tradition and look at its notions of peace, I find that they are rooted very, very deeply in a world of religious passion. It's the concretization of religious concerns into secular politics that becomes responsible for war. But the fundamental experience of the religious quest as articulated by the prophets is precisely the opposite. So the question that I would address, I would never be the Prime Minister of Israel. But, the, but if I had five minutes with the Prime Minister of Israel, the thing that I would say to the Prime Minister of Israel is don't assume that the religious population cannot become motivated to the cause of peace. On the contrary, if the religious population lives up to its self-proclaimed identity of being religious, of living a spiritual quest in life, then the motivations of peace and the ideas of peace should be very, very powerful motivating factors for them. Go to the religious people in Israel, I would say to the Prime Minister of Israel, and talk to them about peace and see what they have to say about it. See how you can learn from them what kind of political solution would make sense to them. Instead of talking in concretized terms about bringing the problems of the world to an end, an idea which is absolutely impossible to accept in the religious, the religious mentality doesn't have that. The ends of the world, the solution to all the problems of the world, that's not, that's not within human capability. Don't talk to me about building perfect societies. Human societies aren't perfect societies. There's no difference between the children and the prime minister. The children of Isaiah are a parody of political leaders. Learn modesty, I would say to the prime minister of Israel, and learn how the idea of peace can be made compelling for religious people. Go to Jewish texts and make that message compelling for them because then Israeli society will get behind your efforts to make peace agreements as long as you don't fool yourself into thinking that you're solving the problems of the world. So I would hate to be the prime minister, but I'd love to have five minutes with him in an elevator. Yes? Yes. The way David did. Sefer Shmuel.
of idolatry. Okay, well, I was anticipating this one. <laughs> no, no, this is a critical question. It's, of course, a critical question. It's a very important one, and I'm really glad that you've asked it. I am not suggesting for a moment that the Jewish tradition is pacifist in the terms that you might find when you hear, you know, 20th century secular pacifism in Western Europe. This might sound a little bit odd, and I'm going to try and explain it. But the notion that peace is a central principle in the Jewish tradition would make no sense and would be entirely incomplete and unsatisfactory if that idea of peace did not in and of itself exist with a paradoxical relationship with war. In other words, war is in and of itself one of the critical components of peace. Now here, I think we need to make a very... Uh, just hang on one second, Alec, one second. One more sentence about that. That idea is captured in the irony that you yourself mentioned. Because we remember Amalek generation after generation after generation in order to forget them, in order to wipe them out. Right? Wipe out the memory of Amalek, don't forget. The, 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 the paradox here is, is striking. The whole idea of wiping out Amalek is a commandment to perpetuate their memory across time. So this, this structure this, that I'm talking about, this paradoxical structure, this oxymoronic structure, applies not only to the relationship between God as a, as a God of war and God as a God of peace, it also applies to the actual perpetual battles that take place between the Jewish people and idolatry. So this is, I think, one of the fundamental structures of the theology of peace that I'm talking about. In the same way, by the way, as Judah and Joseph are never resolved. War and peace are never resolved. Only in a kind of ultimate peace... Now, this kind of ultimate peace transcends the battles that you're describing in Joshua and in Shmuel because they belong to the messianic end that, is, that doesn't exist in that literature. It's not part of that literature. That literature beyond, I would say, above and beyond anything else, that literature exposes the inadequacies of kingship. The whole point of the books of Joshua Judges, Samuel, and Kings is to show the incapacity of kingship to function as a system that points towards God. The result is that the overwhelming theme that runs all the way through those books, there is one thing that stands out more than anything else, 
which is that the Jewish people do not worship God. All the way through the Bible, the Jewish people are worshiping idols. They're worshiping idols over and over and over and over again. We have these little glimpses, these little moments where it's okay. But fundamentally, the experience of those books is a failure of theology and a failure of politics. Within that context, you're absolutely right. That's where God appears as the God of war. The fundamental correction of idolatry is monotheism. In the same sense, the fundamental correction of conflict is peacefulness. And when the Bible in its latter books parodies government and parodies kingship, it also parodies the notion of, of a warring God. And you'll find that strikingly in Isaiah, in the latter chapters of Isaiah, Membet in particular, you'll also find it in Yechezkel, that the idea of the warring God becomes parodied, and the notion of God as a God of peace emerges. But it, it would be meaningless and it would be pointless if the option and the idea of a God as a God of war didn't exist.